0: Father, we bow humbly in your presence now, grateful for the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that cleanses us, that washes us, uh, that satisfies your wrath. Thank you for the willingness of the Lord Jesus Christ to take our sin upon himself. Well, thank you, Father, for all that you accomplish at times like these. You You help us to refocus and retool Renew our hearts for another week. Thank you for the privilege of gathering here on the first day of the week to pray together and to sing together, to bear one another's burdens, to reflect upon your great love in Christ. And now to open our Bibles and to receive a word from you. May your Holy Spirit have great freedom in this place. May you accomplish your purposes through us and in us that we would grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the power of the word, Lord. Thank you for the conviction that it brings. And may it scrub us and wash us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, will you take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 9? What a joy to reflect upon our Lord's death and resurrection around the communion table. I think we have enough time, though, to knock out Genesis chapter 9 this morning. I was thinking how it seems to be a common thread in many families. Have you noticed that in the same household, the same environment, same parents, same community, same church, same parenting style, same value system, that you can raise up a child who is obedient and compliant And you can raise up another child in the same home who is hard-hearted, thick-necked, and rebellious. We have examples of that even in Scripture, don't we? I always find it encouraging that even Adam and Eve had it in their home. Cain and Abel, what a contrast. We have the parable that our Lord used in Luke 15, don't we? Of the lost son, where the one son... Seemed to be compliant, at least at first he did, and stayed home and worked hard and valued all that was his father's. And then the other son said, Daddy, I wish you would die. Let me have my inheritance. I'm out of here. This morning as we read our text, we find that it is, in a sense, a tale of two sons. It's about a family, and it's about a family that's going to fall apart. It's going to do more than fall apart. It kind of flies apart. It's the family of righteous Noah. If you've been with us, you know that we're working our way through this great book of Genesis, foundational to so much of what we understand and know and believe in God's revelation to us. And we're in Genesis chapter 9 this morning. Noah is off the ark now for many years. And this is the final chapter that we're given of Noah's great testimony in life. Like so many... It's somewhat of a blemish on the family name. I want you to read it carefully with me, and we're going to draw some important lessons from this text this morning. We're in Genesis chapter 9, beginning with verse 18. Will you follow along in your copy of God's Word to the end of the chapter? Now, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Parentheses, Ham was the father of Canaan. Take note of that because it's going to occur a couple more times in the text. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. And When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness and when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, "Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will be he be to his brothers." and he also said. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. Remember those words from chapter 5? The genealogy, and then he died. It's the way of all men, isn't it? And so we conclude the life and the testimony of this righteous, godly man. Hebrews 11 tells us he was a great man of faith and righteousness, Noah. What an interesting story we have this morning. It's interesting how God's Word doesn't always do like we do. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have some skeletons in the family closets? Some things that have gone on in the past that you just don't talk about in your family. A breakdown, a sin, misbehavior that has brought shame to the family and you just kind of leave it alone. You know, when we open God's Word, even with the most righteous of the leaders in the text of Scripture, it's right there, isn't it? It's done appropriately if this was Hollywood and they were making a movie out of this, it would have to be R or worse because they'd be right inside that tent with Noah, wouldn't they? And Moses, as he shares this story, he stays outside the tent and tells us the story, not wanting to be inappropriate with what he says and yet wanting to communicate what happened this day. You, know, I've, no, I've titled our sermon this morning, a family that falls apart, a family that falls apart. And as we break down this text and and discern what is going on here, you're going to see that there's going to end up with great division between two of the brothers. It's interesting and it's important for us to note because even to this day, The geopolitical face of the globe in which we live today, the news daily is impacted by the failures of this father and in this family. And today, daily, there is conflict taking place between the descendants of two brothers who fell apart on this day. Let's take note of it. We see in verse 18 that the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. We know that in the great worldwide universal flood of Genesis chapter 6 and 7, that God is, has scoured off the face of the earth. He is every man, woman, child, every animal that was not on the ark has died. The ark, though, has come to rest. Noah now is off of the ark. And uh, we know that from later in the text, we know that, He has grandsons that are living at this time. We know that he has a vineyard that he's planted. So a number of years have gone by following the flood. And the earth is beginning to repopulate. And it's interesting to note that all nationalities of all people come from these four men. Particularly the three sons who repopulated the earth. And genetics is a fascinating study. I'll not comment on it. Don't know very much about it. As you wonder how it could happen, and we'll talk a little bit more about the races, where did nationalities come from, uh, the different languages and so forth as the earth repopulated, that's coming in chapter 10 and chapter 11. But we have the incredible marvel of genetic variation and, and the recombination of the genetic code, how we can have flowing from these three boys and their families the repopulation of the world. We get into the story at hand in verse 20 and we have a picture of a family who falls apart and the first scene that we have in this picture is, number one, a drunken father. A drunken father. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and he lay uncovered inside his tent. First thing we see is almost like Hard to process. What's going on here with Noah? It's interesting in the passage that Noah is not condemned for this behavior in this passage. But later on, uh, Ham, of course, is condemned for his behavior. And we'll talk specifically about that. But we're not given a lot of details and we don't know a lot. As I've already referenced, they've been off the ark long enough. And the text does tell us that Noah was a man of the soil. He was a farmer. Farmers are good people, aren't they? We depend upon them so much. And as he worked the land, he developed a vineyard. And as he developed his vineyard, he harvested grapes and the fruit of the vine. And as he developed his harvest, one of the things he figured out how to do was to make grape juice, and out of the grape juice he made wine. Some people speculate that Noah kind of got blindsided by this, that he had maybe made some juice out of his grapes and had set it on the shelf and didn't realize that it had fermented, that fermentation was something new following the flood. I don't agree with that view. I think that... Um, and what their argument, what the speculation for some Bible students is, is that the atmospheric, uh, atmospheric uh, pressure and, and details of it and the, the difference between the, before the flood and after the flood and so forth, that things didn't spoil in the same way before the flood as after the flood. And I think, I don't know, man, what would it take for juice not to turn into wine? And I also think the condition of the world before the flood somebody figured out how to smoke the weed and make wine. You know that? As wicked as the world was, they—they, they, you know they came up with all these inventions. You're not going to leave a bunch of people alone who can produce things like that and all of a sudden you don't have a whole new industry generated. It's there, isn't it? It's there. And so we can only believe that Noah knew what he was doing, but isn't it interesting, the very nature of alcohol, isn't it? Just one more. Noah, just one more. And he's drinking his wine, and, well, that tastes pretty good. I think I'll have another one. And the next thing you know, Noah is drunk. He's drunk and he's in his tent. A drunken father. The scene develops, and we don't know why he was there or how he entered the scene exactly. I think that it's possible that as... Noah was drinking and was drunk and moved to his tent or was inside his tent. It's possible that that Ham was already in the tent. Perhaps he was sleeping off to the side and he woke up to observe his father. Perhaps he followed his father into the tent. We're not given the details. But we see the second scene in this picture of a family falling apart as it starts with a drunken father. It continues with a disrespectful son. Look at verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. It's interesting, in the Hebrew grammar, the word for saw right there, that Ham saw his father, it implies gazing, staring. It also says in the word, he went out and he told his brothers, the idea in the Hebrew grammar of the word told there implies to tell with delight interesting, isn't it, how people find humor in the basis of things. I have a college roommate that I was very close to. He ended up being the best man in my wedding. And uh, we were roommates for four years in Bible college. And we were in ministerial training. And uh, we were in southern West Virginia at Appalachian Bible College. And and, uh, my roommate uh, began to train for whitewater rafting on the New River with one of the professional guide companies that was there in the area. This is the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And the the professional river rafting companies were beginning to spring up and they were realizing what a market they had and uh, they were beginning to run the river and, and we were developing a rafting program at the Bible College and so my roommate was one of the guys actively involved in that and, and so in the spring, they, he went over to this company and hired on to work part-time for them and to get their guide training and to, to learn how they train guides so that we could do that at our Bible camp. I don't know if you've ever been down the river or not, but river rafters are an interesting bunch of guys. Obviously, when you make generalizations, you, you get in trouble. But these are a bunch of guys who, you know, they, they would uh, hit the slopes all winter and be ski patrol. And then all summer, they'd work the river and work their way, follow the warm weather and live in teepees. They're kind of a bunch of leftover hippies, you know, and just a pagan bunch of guys. And here's my roommate. He's kind of a squeaky clean haircut ministerial student in this guide training program. And one of the things he began to struggle with was not laughing at their humor. Have you ever noticed how funny pagans can be with their nasty humor? And I kind of think that that's a little bit what happened here. We have a drunken father and we have a a disrespectful son who goes into the tent and he observes it. But we notice that he steps even a bit further. And point three with our family falling apart is that we have a, a detestable sin a detestable sin. Notice what, what Ham does. He saw his father's nakedness and he told his two brothers outside. There's a lot of speculation about what really went on here because we have limited detail. The word nakedness is used in the King James translation, in the NASB translation, as, as somewhat of a a metaphor or a, a phrase to describe sexual sin or perversion. For example, in Leviticus chapter 18, 19, 20, in Leviticus, we have under the law a description of all kinds of heinous, improper sexual sin that God puts in a list there. You're not to have have this kind of a relationship with your aunt or your uncle or your father's wife or your cousin, your sister, and he goes down the line and in the King James Bible it uses the word nakedness in there as a description for this kind of behavior. Some Bible students have looked at this and they've speculated that what Ham did was he was involved in some kind of a homosexual act with his father. You can't really get that out of the text and that's not what the Hebrew words mean here. What I think he did is what the river guides do. They saw something. They saw a drunk, naked old man and a whole bunch of river guides. You know what they would do? They would crack jokes all day long about that. You know these kind of people. You work with some of them. I hope you're not one of them. What a distasteful thing. And Ham sees his drunken father. He goes outside the tent and he encounters his brother. And I think what he's doing is he... me. You can't believe Pops. Come over here, you gotta see this. And he commits one of the one of the worst things you can do. Young people want you to listen closely to me right now. Do you realize that in Exodus chapter twenty when God wrote out his top ten list of commands? That command number five is to honor your father and your mother. And I think the great sin that Ham commits, and it is a great sin because the judgment of this behavioral activity and his attitude and his words is impacting our world today. I'll explain that further in a few minutes. But his detestable sin is that he dishonors his father by making a mockery of him in his disgraceful moment. He invaded a, the privacy of his father's tent in an improper manner or perhaps in an accidental encounter, but he turns it into some kind of a laughingstock joke, and in so doing, he mocks his father. I, I would suggest that that's what he's condemned for, and that when God made, wrote the fifth commandment and he said, Honor your father and mother that you might enjoy a long life on the earth. And this is repeated in the New Testament. Listen, that is written and listed with all of the weight of thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Honor your father and your mother. And you can think when you're a teenager, and you can think that you, it's okay for you to to mouth off to your mom and dad, and for you to bring disgrace to your household and to fight and to carry on, you had better wake up because you will find yourself under the judgment of God. It is equivalent to murder. And we have become so tolerant in our culture of the dishonoring of our parents. And young people, it's with all earnestness and love for you and seriousness that I challenge you that if you are dishonoring your parents in any way, You had better wake up because you are bringing judgment on the rest of your life. Because I want you to see something. The next thing that we have in this family that's flying apart is we have a definable moment. Do you recognize how how our lives are defined By the most interesting moments, we find ourselves at a crossroad that might have been unexpected. And in this five minutes, I am going to make choices that will define the course and direction of the rest of my life. And I want you to see something that happens between these brothers. One of them dishonors his father. At the least, it was dishonoring him and making a mockery and making some kind of a river rat joke out of his naked, drunk father at the most i suspect what happened is it was a, it was a gaze of some kind of homosexual voyeurism you can't prove it but it could be but it was despicable what he did regardless of the context in which it takes place and he goes out to his brothers and his brothers now have a definable moment he says come see pops and they say absolutely not man absolutely not Notice what they do. They very respectfully and very carefully, verse 22, Ham saw his father's nakedness, told his two brothers, but, verse 23, Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. And their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father's nakedness. Listen, these two brothers... Ham, it says in the text, was the younger brother. I take it he was probably a little more rebellious by nature, a little friskier. Shem and Japheth say, absolutely not. They take this garment... They put it over their shoulders. They back in through the tent entrance. I suspect looking down at the ground till they could see their dad's toes so they knew they're in the right spot. And then keeping their gaze this way, they flop the garment over the top of their father and exit the tent. They took that moment very seriously. They knew something big had happened there. They did not want to dishonor their father. They refuse to enter into that moment with degrading humor and disregard and disrespect for their father's failure and breakdown. Ultimately, and now we see the ramifications of this, we have number five, kind of a a repeat of our title, but number five is a divided family. Notice when Noah, verse 24, awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, He said, and this is very interesting, notice what's written here. Twice already in the passage, in reference to Ham, he says, every time he mentions Ham, he says, the father of Canaan, the father of Canaan. Now when he wakes up, he recognizes what's happened. We don't know why or how he got the information. It's possible that he had some some kind of a memory of it. It's possible that the, the relocation of the clothing or the coat or the cloak, some Bible students, and I don't, don't know Hebrew well enough to, to verify it, and I didn't see it in all of the commentaries I, I check out, but one of, one of them suggested that in the Hebrew, the article where it says there, a garment, in, uh, in verse 23, it says a garment, took a garment, that in the Hebrew it's actually um, the garment. It's the definite article. And they they speculate, and it's speculation only, that when Ham was in the tent, that he had finished uncovering his father by taking his robe or his coat completely off of him, and that's what he held in his hands to show his brother to say, pops in there, (laughs) you can't believe it, go look. And they took his very coat and put it over their shoulders and went in and dropped it on him. We don't know. They covered him, we know that. What a definable moment for Shem and Japheth. What a horrible moment for Ham because when Noah comes out, he once and for all divides the family, calling them what they are. Noah says, verse 24 and 25, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. It sounds like he's just mad, he's just upset. Like I said, we don't know how he found out. I suspect that Ham couldn't keep his mouth shut. I suspect that Ham went over to his tent, sat around the fire and cracked more jokes with his sons who were probably just like him, who were bad eggs, who were making fun of their grandpa. Why did he pick Canaan? Did you notice that? That's interesting, isn't it? Ham's the one who did the despicable act of dishonoring his father. And Noah gets out. He's now alert and awake, realizes what happened. And he, and he speaks judgment and damnation on Canaan, his son. If you look over in chapter 10, verse 6, we have the sons of Ham. His sons were Cush, Mizram, Put, and Canaan. I would suggest that because of their order, Canaan was the youngest son of Noah's youngest son, Ham, I believe that Ham was a righteous man. You could ask the question, will we see Ham in heaven? I don't know. He was saved on the ark, wasn't he? Was he on the ark because of his own motivation or was he held in and corralled in by his strong father? And that when he got off the ark, he started living wild side and that his true colors came out. Some of you know what that's like, aren't don't you? While you're under your parents' watch, you live one way. When you're outside of your parents' watch, your heart immediately goes another way. You can fool around if you want, but I'm going to tell you something. I am sure that when Ham heard the words of his father Noah, he had to, no matter how hard his heart is, realize that what had gone down was huge. This is the moment of a father who, because of his stupidity, maybe carrying on, talking on his cell phone or doing stupid stuff while he's driving, runs a stop sign and gets hit, and his little boy is now in the hospital paralyzed. You want to say, why did God condemn Canaan? I think one reason is, is because what would have been worse for him? For him to have a judgment or for his sons to have judgment? How would you feel if you're the father in the hospital next to your son's bed and you're the one that caused this judgment on him because of your stupidity? cuts your heart right out of you, doesn't it? I would die a thousand deaths before I bring this on my son. I think another reason why God, why Noah did this, he knew how to get at Ham. I'll judge your son. And I don't think Noah did this in a fit of rage or temper. But secondly... Judgments in the Bible by heads of households are often prophetic, aren't they? We'll see more of these kinds of things. Blessings and judgment by the head of the household. We'll probably have a whole message on this sometime in the book of Genesis. Where the sons long for the blessing of their father. And father, are you blessing your sons? We'll talk more about that too. But Noah makes a prophetic judgment. He knows... That it is the Canaanites, the descendants of Ham to his son Canaan, who will then come out of him many tribes and peoples who will possess the land that Israel will come into one day. Israel, the sons of Shem. Are you getting the picture of a house divided? Later on in the book of Joshua in our Old Testament, what is Joshua and Caleb, what are they going to do? They're going to go in and they're going to wipe out city after city after city. They all come underneath the bracket in the family tree of the sons of Canaan, the sons of Ham. And Noah, in his pronouncement of judgment on Cain, is seeing down prophetically the fruit of the hard heart of these boys. Don't tell me this grandfather didn't already see in Canaan the, the rascalian heart of his father Ham. He knew he was a bad boy. And I say that in the sense of observing his behavior a rebellious son, a rebellious grandson. Notice what he does to Shem. It's interesting how he phrased it, but he also said, verse 26, it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. It's like he puts a blessing on God, but Shem comes underneath it. And then it's even interesting, he then says, may Canaan be the slave of Shem. He's talking about the son of one of his grandson to his son. It's like Ham, he won't even mention his name. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. I want to stop right now. I want to say something because through the years, not so much nowadays anymore, but years and years ago, at the time, for example, of our civil war in, in American history, Bible students and pastors would suggest that the sons of Ham were the African black slaves. And they would build a theology for slavery It's part of the reason the church was so silent on slavery during the Civil War, and they would build a case that the race that came out of Ham through Canaan ended up being black people who end up being slaves, and that's what God's judgment was, so what are we going to do about it? Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible itself clears that one up in in a variety of ways. They aren't the black Africans, they're the Canaanites, which I'll show you in just a minute. But their judgment was to be a servant to Shem and his descendants and notice Japheth's blessing. Because I don't know why this happened exactly, but we have Shem, perhaps he was the oldest brother, we're not sure, and Japheth, who both did the same thing, perhaps Shem had suggested to Japheth, hey, don't go there, let's get, the, let's get him covered up. And it was Shem who took leadership, But Japheth's blessing is from living in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slaves. So Shem, may your tent be blessed. Japheth, may you be blessed by living in the tents of your brother and dwelling there. And Canaan, may you be judged by coming in and serving both of those older brothers. And so we now have a house that is incredibly divided And it was a curse put on Israel's future enemies. And let me show you the blessing put on Shem. Turn the page and we'll talk more about this in an upcoming message. But in chapter 11, beginning with verse 10, notice what the first sentence is of verse 10. This is the account of Shem. He's then going to break into a genealogy of hard names to pronounce. But at the end, at verse 24, he says some names that we know. All of a sudden, oh, I know these guys. And they're the descendants of Shem. Verse 24, When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. Oh, that some of you have been around Sunday school for a while. Should start... Oh, yeah, I know that guy. Wait a minute, who is he? And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And after Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of... What's the next name? Abram. Oh, we have another covenant coming up. Do you know that? And God is going to walk this Abram outside his tent one night. And he's going to say, Abram, look up, beside, look up at the night sky, at the stars. Do you see the stars in the sky? Count them for me. Count them for me, Abraham. And he says, they're impossible to count. There's too many. And God says, I'm going to make a promise to you, Abraham, even though you're so old, your body's as good as dead, that out of you is going to spring a son." And that son will populate and you're going to be my people. And he makes a covenant with Abraham that out of Abraham will come his people and out of Abraham has come the nation of Israel today. And the Israelites are the sons of Shem. The Canaanites, you can't find worse enemies of the Israelites than the Canaanites. It was his brother's people. It is Israelites' brother's people. We're going to see that duplicated again in Isaac and Ishmael. And his cousins, his nephews, they live to wipe them out off the face of the earth, even to this day. Who's Japheth's people? Who's Japheth's people living in his tents? I don't have time anymore to expand on it too much, but let me say this. Japheth in the table of nations are the Gentiles. Now the picture makes sense. How are we blessed? How are we? As though born out of time, blessed. Through the sons of Abraham. Through that son of Abraham. Through the lineage of David who went to the cross on our behalf. Who opened up the law. Fulfilled the law. And opened up the doors of God's heaven through His salvation. That whosoever will may come. That God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him. You don't have to be a Jew to find favor in God's eyes. An Israelite, a son of Abraham. And Paul says in Galatians, he says in Galatians that we then become spiritual sons of Abraham through the blood of Christ. Now I'm getting it. It is through Shem's tent That he'll be blessed under God, but Japheth gets to come in the tent. Japheth becomes a blessing. He is blessed because of Israel. That is why we have an Israeli flag up here. Because we bless Israel because we get to to live in Shem's tent. And we stand against the sons of Canaan. Can they come into grace? Can they be saved? Absolutely. And the sons of Ishmael. We'll talk more in detail about this. But I want to tell you something. The leaders of our land better wake up and they better stay, Japheth, enjoying the tents of Shem. They better not leave and go out and join the sons of Canaan because there is a blessing and there is a curse. And we will never see days like we will see if we turn our back on the sons of Shem. What a blessing. What a blessing. But what do we do with a story like this beyond that to take it home with us? man, I'm encouraged a couple weeks in a row, man. We've really been having some just the greatest scriptures. There's a drunk old man in his tent, and I can't get that image out of my head, and I'm going to go eat lunch. <laughs> Give me a couple more minutes, and let's wrap this up with some life application for today, okay? Number one, from this divided family, we learned some very important lessons Number one lesson I think that we learned that jumps off the page at me right away is that alcohol and personal humiliation are kissing cousins. If you don't believe me, write it down and slap that on your mirror at home, because someday you're going to look at it and you say, "Oh, Pastor Van knew exactly what he's talking about." And the reason I know isn't because I've ever drank any alcohol, it's because of what's on the page. Righteous Noah becomes the biggest fool because he let his drinking get out of control. And I take it he knew exactly what he was doing. You want to mess up your life? Think of all the reasons why it's okay for you to drink alcohol. I don't know how many times I've dealt with family problems and how many times, and talk to Tim Hellman in the foyer later from the prosecutor's office, what is the percentage of the sinful, disgraceful behavior activities that, that crush the family and destroy the culture when alcohol is not involved? You can count those incidents on one hand, basically. 90 plus percent, I'll bet you, have alcohol involved, alcohol involved, alcohol involved. Want to make a fool out of yourself? Drink alcohol. Young people, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, you need to think of all the reasons why not to drink alcohol. You say, Pastor Van, the Bible says it's okay. The Bible says, though, it's a fool. It is a fool who will be deluded by strong drink. Proverbs chapter 23. I'll tell you something. You think you're the man, but you're not. You think you can handle it. You think you're just going to party a little bit. One of the applications of this lesson is to look at the life of a righteous man like Noah and notice the grief that's brought into his life because of alcohol. Notice how it destroyed his home and his family. And I don't know too many cases here this morning, but I'll bet I can take this microphone down here and walk around this room. And I'll bet you if we can't come up with 20 stories, 20 different families represented right here in this room this morning, I'll bet you where alcohol is divided and torn up your home. Listen, we are called to be filled with the Spirit, not drunk with wine. Number two, we never outgrow the need for God's grace. We never outgrow the need for God's grace, do we? Here's righteous Noah in his old age, and you think, well, he's just going to sail on to heaven, and he trips up. He needs grace. No matter how old you are, you need God's grace to maintain a righteous life, don't you? You ever heard the expression, no fool like an old fool? That could come out of this passage, couldn't it? Listen, revel in God's grace, count on God's grace, move forward in righteousness by God's grace, and in your old age, don't let down your standards. You can undo a lot of good things in just a few minutes, even in your old age. Number three, we never outgrow the command to honor our father and our mother. These are grown adult sons, and Ham is a grown man with grown sons when he dishonors his father and he ruins his life and he brings condemnation on his household. This is a very important principle in our culture because we elevate youth and we think that if you're young, you're smarter and more clever than those who are old. And I'll tell you something, we've got to cart before the horse. And we, dis- we disregard and we disgrace our parents' wisdom and our knowledge and we need to honor The elderly. We need to honor our father and our mother. And you are playing with fire if you are in a mode of rebellion in your household right now. Number one, alcohol and personal humiliation are kissing cousins. Number two, we never outgrow the need for God's grace. Number three, we never outgrow the command to honor our father and our mother. Number four, the sins of the father can have lasting and generational fallout. Do you know that? How many of you can trace your family tree and it was a disgraceful act of on the part of your father or your grandfather that brought division and judgment on your household and you're still fighting to overcome it. It's there, isn't it? And fathers present here this morning, one of the things that we need to do is walk in righteousness and obedience so that we keep the judgment of God off the next generation. It's not that our sins, in essence, each man has to pay for his own sin, Ezekiel says. But what happens is that I open the door and give permission for my children to live worse than I've lived. And the next thing you know, one generation away from a godly man, two generations away from a godly man, we've got pagan children because a father let down somewhere and in essence brings judgment on his children. Number five, guard your eyes. You realize in this story, that if Ham had just refused to look at that which was indecent and and exposed and improper, that he'd have saved him, his whole family line. You don't have permission to look at whatever you want to look at. There is a such thing as a righteous morality. And you can't handle looking at whatever you want to look at. And we sing, Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a father up above and he's looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. How many times do people create chaos and even ruin their marriage, ruin their family because they allowed their eyes to pave the way by looking at the wrong things? Some of you guys need to wake up out there. You never outgrow the command to honor your father and mother. The sins of the father can have a lasting and generational fallout. Number five, guard your eyes. It's not okay to look at whatever you want to look at. Finally, and we must end. Psalm 32 1. You can look it up later, but you know what it says in short? Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. It's pretty neat to make a parallel between another man who sinned from the fruit of a tree instead of the fruit of a vine. Who realized he was naked and need covered, and how the Lord came himself and covered him and covered his shame and his disgrace, and how Noah parallels Adam's fall. And he had a son who came and covered him and covered his shame. Blessed, David said, Psalm 32, 1 is the man whose sins are covered. The ultimate lesson we get from this passage is that all of us are naked and shameful, aren't we? And we need covered up. And we have here, in essence, an early picture of what the gospel will be, isn't it? That we will be covered ultimately by our older brother, Hebrews 1 and 2, the Lord Jesus, as he covers us with the blood. That's what we've been talking about at the communion table. My shame and my disgrace are covered by the blood of Christ. Are you covered today? Are you covered? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? I hope so. Well, that's the message, and we must go home because we're Americans and we go by the clock. I don't know what we have that's so important here right now, but we're 20 minutes past the hour of dismissal time. It's all because of communion. Before we go, though, will you think with me about how the message fits your life today? What an incredible, incredible last chapter in Noah's life story. Will you finish well, oldsters out there? Will some of you youngsters wake up and recognize that you're playing with fire and your arrogance and pride and disrespect? But more than anything else, will you let the blood of Christ cover your shame? We need a covering, don't we? Let's pray. Father, convict, challenge, open eyes and hearts and minds that we would recognize what a great salvation is available through Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for not hiding this skeleton in Noah's closet. Thank you that we can learn from the failures of others and we do not have to go that way ourselves. Help us to recognize that you are a righteous and holy God and you put a, a high premium on obedience and honoring those who are over us. So help us, Lord, to be different than the world because we're your children. Help us to walk in grace. We admit our need for grace every day that we would walk in obedience. Accomplish your plan and purposes in our lives, I pray in Jesus' precious name.